Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. Did you miss me? I know it's been a few weeks. Uh, I've been gone for just a little while here. Uh, Nothing to worry about. We are doing better than ever and back better than ever with some amazing uh, episodes coming your way. I'll probably share the reasons for the delay in a future episode, but not today. Today, we have a much more entertaining episode. Today, I have a conversation to share with you with that I had with a man named Pete Dominic. Pete is a very bright guy. He's a stand-up comedian. Uh, you've probably seen him on TV at some point. He uh, also has an incredible podcast called Stand Up with Pete Dominic, which I enjoy very much and recommend that you check out. Uh, me and Pete, we certainly have different uh, ideas on things. We had differing opinions, conflicting opinions, and uh, ultimately that led to a constructive conversation, at least in my mind. Uh, it was great to be able to talk to somebody with different ideas and to hash out our, our disagreements and talk about uh, you know things that we do agree on, all while remaining completely civil. And I really appreciate that. I love when I'm able to have a conversation like this with someone who can express their ideas maintain, uh, you know, they're, you know, just the polite conversation. It's, it's a rare thing these days and I really enjoy it. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as well. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Pete Dominic. Hey, Pete, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Patrick, it's an honor to be invited on any show. Seriously, uh, (laughs) all I do is talk for a living, so I'm happy to talk to you. Seem like a smart cat. Fantastic, man. Uh, For the audience out there who maybe is not totally familiar with your work yet, would you mind telling them like in your own words, you know, the things that you do? Because it's it's quite a range of stuff. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I started off as a stand-up comedian in my uh, early 20s, moved to New York, and then... I did that successfully for a long time, made a pretty good living performing at colleges and clubs across the country. Then I got into like audience warm up where you warm up the audiences for studio, you know, for television shows. And I did that on a bunch of crappy shows. And then I did it on the Daily Show and then the Colbert Report, which is pretty awesome and, and, and did that for a while. And then I got into radio at Sirius XM and worked there uh, up until October of this year when they ended my contract after 14 years. But that led to a lot of different things and really changed my career from being a comedian to be more of a kind of a cultural commentator and a interviewer and a moderator and Aspen Ideas Festivals. I got a contract at CNN, which was a pretty great deal. And, uh, and now I'm doing my own thing. I got my podcast that I launched as soon as I left Sirius. I went right into podcasting and I'm trying to figure the, the podcast game out and uh, and do the patreon thing and so i'm starting to sell ads and it's uh it's a lot of work i'm enjoying it it's terrifying but i'm navigating it as best i can i wasn't expecting uh, to lose my great gig at sirius xm when i did so you know you got to adapt yeah i mean well you're you're one of the pioneers now you know sort of going out your own way with the uh, independent show i think that's sort of the way things are headed anyway so you know i commend you for you know, taking the leap and, and just rolling, going with the flow. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much of a leap it was. I, what, what was I supposed to do? You know, it's like, more uh, of a kick. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You get kicked and then it's how you respond to the kick, how you react when you get knocked down. Uh, you get back up again. Um, you know, I, I've always done that, although I haven't, you know, I haven't really had a lot of adversity in my life, period, to be honest with you. My wife, however, has struggled with all kinds of things. So she's been an amazing partner for me to kind of understand what it's like to be a 44-year-old man who's got a career who's on fire in a national show and a regular cable news guy. And, you know, all of a sudden go, wait, what do I, I got to rebuild this? I got two kids that are 12 and 15 and healthcare bills and a mortgage. And so it's a, it's a, a fascinating adversity 
to try to deal with and, and struggle and overcome when you haven't had that for a while, if ever. Because when I first started as a comedian, you know, it's really hard to make it a living or a dollar as a comedian, but it was different because I was young and I was single. Now I got kids. So everything is, you know, a lot different. Yeah, that's, uh, I can imagine. I, I literally imagine how crazy my life is now. I have no kids. And, you know, if I threw a couple of kids in the mix, I'm sure it, it you know, raises the stakes. Uh, it's a, it, that's an understatement. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, anybody who doesn't have kids or want kids is I, I applaud for that because I don't, I think parenting's really hard a and B we have too many human beings, not enough. Well, we have enough resources. We just don't distribute them very, uh, very equitably. And it's, it's hard, whether it be healthcare, education, food, you know, uh, shelter, whatever it is. So if you don't have kids, good for you. And uh, if you do have kids, get, you know, prepared. The rewards are, uh, are obviously amazing. But, you know, having your child struggle is, is, is uh, the toughest thing in the world. I, can, I can't even imagine. Did you uh, struggle? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts where everyone struggles for a living. <laughs> do, you, do you talk about what your struggle was on, the, on this show or, or, or do you uh, refuse to have it turned back on you? Oh, no, I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, it's, uh, I did door-to-door sales for many years. Uh, you know, I, I did door-to-door in the solar industry. Uh, I was telling you my solar, oh, you know, Yeah, and how was now. that? Was that challenging? Oh, you know, you take thousands of doors to the face, you know what I mean? People slamming them on you, you know, shutting you down, negativity all day long. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, it's, it, it's a great way to develop thick skin. Uh, similar to, I, I can imagine, you know, doing stand-up, except stand-up you're doing in front of, hundreds or thousands of people and if you have a bad set you're it's like you know all that sort of negativity amplified compared to i was just sort of going one at a time getting getting doors slammed yeah it's a different kind but but no no doubt that's that's got to be a struggle do you feel though that having that experience or you know thousands of experiences made you you know kind of where you're at now oh yeah absolutely you know especially uh, you know, when I grew up, I was more of an introvert. So, you know, when you're able to, you know, overcome that sort of thing by going fiercely in the opposite direction. And look at you now, you're a talk show host. That's impressive. That's interesting too. Yeah. You know, you got to round out the rough edges a little bit, you know, so, so, you know, take a dive into things that make you very uncomfortable, get comfortable being uncomfortable, that sort of stuff. Who taught you that? Joe Rogan. Oh, really? Yeah. I love the Rogan philosophy, right? Uh, he's, I don't know what his philosophy is. I mean, I did a show and I, I feel like, I feel like Joe, he obviously has a lot of ideas and opinions and, and, and thoughts on things, but I always struggle to kind of like, uh, decide what kind of a person he is. I, I, you know, I don't love labels or adjectives to describe people's ideology, but you know, sometimes they're, they're helpful and, and, and you can understand where someone's coming from, but you know, do, do, would you, can you put a guy like, like him? Could you, what would be a word you'd that you would use for, to describe his, I don't know, philosophy or ideology or life? uh, I guess the only thing I could describe as open-minded and willing to communicate. And what I love about, you know, that like, like it's, it's not even like his philosophy or individual beliefs or anything like that. What's cool, what he's created over there is, you know, you take a step back and you look at sort of the collective uh, you know, ideology and philosophies of all the people that he's had come and go through the, through the show. And, you know, that creates, paints sort of a whole different picture. It had, and there's some common threads that you start to notice between a variety of different guests, you know? And so it's, it's more of like the collective philosophy of all those people that he hosts that sort of, you know, creates an interesting that's, dynamic. That's a, yeah. I like that. I mean, I, I think that's what I'm, I've always tried to do my whole career at Sirius XM, I would have three to four guests a show, you know, I did three hours a day, five days a week. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't feature in the last few years, a lot of, you know, really conservative voices, but the show wasn't always, I should say political either. So, you know, I I hope that when people listen to my podcast now that it's not certainly always overtly political, though it seems everything is, and it's easier to create content around that because there's a lot that needs to be understood. But, you know, I've been talking a lot about my own personal uh, adversity, and that's not political. That's really men being vulnerable and sharing their struggles so other men can know they're not alone and offer help. And I've, I've, the universe has opened up for me in, in, in terms of kind of uh, 
uh, emotionally. Like people have just shown up and said, here's what I did when I was in your situation. And so that's part of the show I'm now hosting. Another part is, is parenting. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you know, political. Um, it seems like everything is these days and it's easy to make anything political, including parenting or, you know, being uh, a man. What does that even mean at this point? Gender and, and gender fluidity and so on. But I, I feel like Joe, me, you, you're trying to have a conversation that's thought provoking and isn't all uh, necessarily uh, triggering. Yeah. Although, Everybody can always be triggered, and I'm fine with that. But you're not trying to do that. He's not trying to do that. I'm not trying to do that. A lot of hosts do, and that's you know how they make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't see the value in just like upsetting people because it just sort of creates more of a divide. Like what I find interesting is when you see people make that switch from like this was my idea and this is my new set of beliefs. You know, Evolution. or they're able to yeah, just able to sort of you know sort of get rid of the old, take in the new, that sort of like renewal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I, I like, I like to think that it's not controversial to believe that we all evolve in the way that we think about any number of things from what life means to relationships with other people, to the value of work, to, anything, your diet, your exercise routine. I'm trying this now. I'm going to try that uh, for you, beard trimming, uh, hairstyles, not so much for me, but you know, but everything is on a, on a spectrum where you evolve. I, I believe I don't want to be controversial. I wish everybody thought that way. I know they don't. I suppose probably a lot of people like, you know, people don't change. I'm not going to change nothing. I don't want to learn anything new. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of different types of people, but I think a lot of folks, especially younger folks, want to evolve and learn and grow. I hope. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that's one of the interesting things about today with like the internet and, you know, podcasts and like the fact that we can sort of dig through the archives like never before. Like you see, uh, you know, like last night and, and last week, the debates with Bloomberg and stuff. It's like they're bringing up all this crazy stuff about 20 years ago, these comments that he said. And it's like, can't we just uh, agree that people change and grow and maybe they're not the same person today as they were 20 years ago? I think that's a really important point to, to be made. But I, but I think I would, I, I have a caveat, which is I actually think, and I said this on, uh, on Rogan's show, I got a lot of flack for, well, everything I said on his show, I got a lot of flack for, uh, but he and I got along great. But a lot of, you know, it's a massive audience and you're always going to find people who don't like what, you're, what, you, what you say. And, but what my, my point is, if you're a murderer or a rapist and you've you know, been found guilty and gone to jail for life, you can change. A lot of people don't. A lot of people never uh, even admit their guilt or that they did it or they just, uh, you know, they don't find any kind of growth. They don't become a better person. I have deeper thoughts on what makes someone, you know, be violent to begin with. What, what was their life like? But yeah. the, point, the point being, if you're a Mike Bloomberg, if you're a... Uh, Joe Biden, any older man or woman, whatever, and you said or did something terrible 20 years ago, should it matter? Yes, if you haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Robert Byrd was a senator from West Virginia who was also a Klan member, but he evolved radically and became an anti-racist. The same is true of a guy named Christian Piccolini, who is a white supremacist. He radically changed and became better. So if you're a, if you are a really sexist person who's making, you know, and doing sexist things and you never change Harvey Weinstein, uh, potentially Michael Bloomberg. I, I don't like, I don't see Michael Bloomberg's evolution on those things, which is why I still think that they're relevant. He doesn't seem to be apologetic about them. And that's fine. By the way, that's totally fine. He doesn't have to, but if you're running for the highest office in the world, you do have to. And I think that's the problem that gets lost in a lot of these conversations where it's like, if it's me or you who said or did something 20 years ago, yeah, maybe we should let it go because I'm in the private sector and I, you know what, I'm a mechanic. I work at a garage. Why do you care what I said to this person? All right, fair enough. You're just fixing my brakes. I don't care how you treated women or something like that. But if you're running, if you're going to be a judge or a president or, you know, run for public office, I do think you get held to a much higher, higher standard. What do you think about that? 
Uh, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously, it's kind of crazy that these people, you know, with all these comments and these backgrounds are even the top candidates for this crazy job that, you know, may should or should not exist one, you know, president or whatever. Yeah, uh, we could argue, but yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think we should have one president, uh, but I don't agree with everything like our economic yeah. system, our government. Like I would with, with, with technology, the way it is, you could do direct democracy so much better and have so much more transparency, but we're stuck in this old system that frankly was, you know, designed and created before email and machine guns. Yeah, no, it's crazy. We need to sort of update the antiquated system. Like you look around, we have all sorts of other new technology, but you know, our government is still in this like ancient form. It's kind of crazy, but yeah. What you know, do you I think th- about being in solar? I mean, what are your thoughts on using you know the last century's energy so much, knowing the damage that it's doing, and 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 also knowing how we can harness the the sun? I have solar panels on my house. I was an early adapter. I have an electric car. Like it, it totally makes sense to me. Yeah, that, that's what I love about it, is it just makes sense. Like you know, you, you I remember the first time I had like a solar powered calculator, and I it was like ah. this little panel is what's powering the calculator. Why don't we use this for everything? Uh, you know, it's like that kind of like, it just makes sense. I don't really look at it from a political perspective whatsoever. And I actually think, you know, like, like, you know, you need oil for products and it's not, it's not a good fuel source or it's not like a sustainable fuel source, but like rubber and, and plastics and things you need oil for, you need, you know, a, a diverse energy portfolio. Cause the sun might not always shine, you know, like I, I've had a couple of nuclear experts on the show. Like, you know, I don't even look at it from a political standpoint, more of just like, it's common sense and there's some things that are bound to run out like those, you know, fossil fuels. And it's not a good idea to depend all of our energy on that. Uh, but there's things that just make a ton of sense. Like the sun is up every day in California. Let's, let's harness the power. By the way, tying, uh, you know, two of your points together, you know, should we be forgiven for things that we said or did, you know, 20, 30 years ago in the solar calculator, I immediately think of boobless. (laughs) The, The only word you could type into a calculator uh, but I was a boy. I was a little boy, and well, boobless yeah. was hilarious. It was hilarious, but also like I, I, I wonder about that as well. Like you know, if what's you go not back- funny is when you handed the calculator to a girl who's going through puberty late and doesn't have any <laughs> boobs, and you're like, "Look, this is you." Yeah, maybe she probably still remembers that asshole. I wonder though, like sort of from like uh, the consciousness level of, of, you know, making jokes back then where there was no receipts and you didn't even imagine that there ever would be receipts for it. You know what I mean? Like, the, like the, Bloomberg probably made these comments, never expecting these things to resurface just because that wasn't the world we lived in. It was like, if you didn't get it on like a VCR tape, it was never going to come back. You know, but, it's like, uh, I, I totally, that's a great point. And it's one that's interesting to unpack, but I just feel, I still feel like, listen, if you're running for president of the United States, much less mayor or governor, I, I forgive you for all the things you said and did, but there's somebody who's actually always been a better person than you, including someone who made similar jokes and, 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 and did similar things and evolved without there being any public scrutiny. They just did it because they thought that was the right thing to do. We all evolved. So I'm always going to want to support the candidate for any office who's just always been a better person or, or started where maybe you started, but, but matured and evolved where you didn't. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. And, and don't, you know, get me wrong. I'm not really a, a, a Bloomberg, you know, fan or anything. It's just an interesting, uh, I'm not, I'm not interpreting anything. I think everything okay. you're saying is a fascinating point and an important point and one I'm not making. So I'm just elaborating on it or cutting, you know, in between it. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting time though. And it's interesting to see all these older guys struggle with like this new dimension of reality sure. where you can pull up the past and, and in a way that was never really, they didn't conceive of that when they made the comments and things. Yeah. And it's also, you know, pretty terrible when it's taken out of context or, I mean, you know, I think there's, again, I think that we have to be careful and have nuance in this conversation. If it's a comedian that was doing it for the purposes of making people laugh, you know, it's still not great, in my opinion, if they're punching down because if you're getting laughs at making fun of, you know, a, a group that's always been oppressed and, you know, maybe try harder. But but still, I mean, you're a comedian. It's it's different than if you are uh, a CEO, a businessman or woman uh, or, you know, mayor. It's it's just a different threshold uh, as to how those points are being made. Comedian says something versus, you know, the head of a company saying something. Yeah. They're different. They're different. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, from, from like sort of the, the comedian perspective for you, it, it's got to be one of the best times ever to be commenting on politics. Is this not the most entertaining time in, in political history? Well, at least in my it, lifetime. 
Yes. I mean, it is, but there's two things about it. It's number one, there's a billion voices you're competing with. Yeah. And number two, you, you wish that things weren't so crazy and bad that there was so much content. <laughs> yeah. That's around with like you, you while o- Obama was really hard to make fun of really hard. Yeah. He didn't even have like a voice affect uh, like almost every president does. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was just difficult to make fun of him and things, you know, from my obviously vantage point as a guy who really supported him seemed like they were a lot more quote normal. And, and we went from a horrible economy. It was really scary to better. And like, I, I'm glad we didn't have as much, to make fun of as opposed to like the, the president now, like major spelling errors in tweets. And by the way, do I even joke about that? It's, it's like he's writing the jokes himself just by his behavior. I mean, like every president could be made fun of for the way that they looked. A- every person could be made fun of for the way that they look. And I'm really good at that, picking people apart. I was a warm-up comedian. You know, I try not to hurt people's feelings. But like Trump doesn't look like anybody you've ever met. Yeah. He doesn't look, he doesn't look normal, his skin color and his hair, um, and even the way that he physically uh, uh, gesticulates, it's not in any way normal. And so therein lies like a lot of, if you want, it's low hanging, but just making fun of his color, which is un- and not a natural color. It's artificially put on his hair. It's artificial and it's, to put all that in one package, it's sometimes hard to think why anybody would support that person even to you know trust that person to buy a car from like if, if a guy looked like donald trump and had an orange spray tan and that hair and tried to sell me a car i wouldn't buy it from him i'm like there's something fake about you you everything here i'm looking at is fake you got a hair piece on i'm not saying trump does but uh you know but if a guy looked like that i'm like i don't know if i want to buy a car from this guy yeah but people a lot of people you know obviously worship him or trust I mean, him completely I feel like that's a change in attitude, like overall, like even when I remember growing up and like, you know, tattoos were still considered like taboo in a way. Like if you had tattoos, you couldn't get professional jobs yeah. or it's like, that's yeah. out the window. Yeah. Now. I worked like, at Disney world. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like the could. whole, the whole dynamic has changed. We've like sort of dropped those values. You can have blue hair and tattoos all over and you'll, you'll still get a corporate job. Yeah. Uh, yes. I think that's probably true, but is it true in, in politics increasingly? I mean, now you can be, um, not overtly religious, like you have to have to lie if 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 you weren't you know uh, yeah. religious, or you could be gay, uh, or you know, uh, bi. Uh, I think it's gonna. I think transgender people are still gonna have a really hard time getting elected. Although there are some elected officials, certainly in business as well. So yeah, it, it depends on what uh, industry or category of, of job. But yeah, you're right. It's a good point. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know it really takes one person to push the envelope. Like I feel like there was always this feeling about like what's presidential, and I feel like that's what Obama he he was made to look to and sound presidential. Like that's what he well, did, except for being black. Yeah, he, he, yeah, it's like, but his demeanor and his tone and his you know he's very well spoken, cool, and not reactive and not yeah. overly emotional, and at least on, on in public. And yeah, and I think that's what so was originally so shocking about Trump was people were like, this guy just doesn't fit my mental impression of what a president is supposed to look like, you know, what you expect them to look, sound, or act like. And and that was probably the most startling thing and caused the most sort of like panic when he was elected. Trump. Yeah, Trump. Yeah, it's just like, you know, it's, it's just because it mostly doesn't fit your mental model of what a president's supposed to be and look like compared to all the other ones that you might have experienced. Yeah, and I mean, you know, a, a lot of Trump supporters say that that's what they wanted. They wanted something yeah. completely different. But, uh, you know, there's there's completely different that comes in a lot of other packages that isn't also, you know, insane. I think he's in a crazy person, like a really, really insane sociopath of a person that has no curiosity about, the issues that, you know, he has to deal with or the people whose job it is for him to protect, much less his own family. I, I mean, that's, that might be offensive to some people to hear, but the, I, I, have, I can't imagine, I have a hard time imagining why people think he cares about them. Being a New Yorker as, as well, you know, like, uh, you know, I always watch him. Like, he never cared about anybody but himself. Married three times. He didn't care about any of them, his kids. It's like, he's not this whole thing with this coronavirus. He just science he's not curious about how viruses spread he's just worried about what it means for him which is you know super disconcerting 
Yeah, it's it's crazy to me because I, I I think of that question quite a bit. Like, what what's his intentions for the whole thing? Because on one hand, like you know, he, he gives off all the signals that you would think it's it's a self centeredness or it's it's you know for his own you know reputation and uh, legacy and all those things. But on the other hand, I'm like, hey, if I was a billionaire, I would never step into this arena and insulin become the, you know basically the most hated person in America by deciding to become president this late in life. It's like. I, if I was in his position, I think I would retire on an island somewhere and never talk to people. Yeah, but anybody, I, I think anybody who tries to put themselves in his place uh, is probably you know, going to come up short because, again, he, he doesn't think that way. I, I think it's easy to see that he only cares about power and ego. And so many, you might argue, well, then if that's you know, ego matter, why does he, how does he deal with being so hated? I don't think he knows how hated he is. That's why he goes to those rallies every, every, because he goes to where his people are. He only reads the good things. And I think he's greatly affected when he sees the bad things and they certainly get through. And by the way, when someone, you know, counters him or, or, or challenges him in his administration, much less in his company, they go bye-bye. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's interesting to imagine himself, you know, in one of those positions where he's like come out into one of those, like, uh, you know, came out, it's like a world series stadium and, got booed. Uh, and I wonder if like in his mind, he's hearing his tears, you know, it's like, like, is he experiencing, like, is he experiencing the same sort of, uh, cognitive, uh, dissonance that the rest of us experience? You know, yes. In a different, uh, yeah, I think so. But what do you think about the idea of loyalty? Where, where, where does that fit in, in, in your world? I think that's an interesting conversation. Well, I, I mean, from my perspective, like I, I look at my company and my, my business. And if I had someone that was like constantly undermining our systems and like the, our objectives and our goals and things like that, you'd have to get rid of them because that it's like a toxicity that spreads to other people within your, your organization. If you're trying to get things done, uh, you kind of, you know, it's like, you lose that thing. Now the difference is like with the government and the a business completely separate things. Cause you like to think that a government should be made up of, you know, of diversity of ideas and opinions and competing, you know, arguments and things like that. But on the other hand, I can see from his perspective coming from the business world of like, if it's, if it's a cancer, if it's toxic, like get it out because it's not going to help us advance our agenda or move us forward. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, I just think that, uh, you know, running a private company is completely different. Uh, the antithesis in terms of what the goal is. You're just, you're trying to make money. And by the way, if I'm working for you at your solar company and I learn all of your tricks and secrets and take them and run, you know, and now become your competitor, is that just the part of doing business or should I have been more loyal to you because you taught me everything I know? But when it comes time to, you know, I, I guess the question is, is there a loyalty to the mission or to the person? And I, yeah. I don't know. It depends on it depends on where you're working or what your what your goals are. But I think in government we should be very careful. Uh, history will tell us about loyalty to a person, as Certainly. opposed to the country, the constitution, the community that you live in. Yeah, and I think that's where you know it's like one of those double-edged swords. Like on one hand, it's effective leadership. On the other hand, it can turn tyrannical. And it's like, uh, you know, it's it's. Like a lot of things that you notice, like I love to observe the news from both perspectives. I follow everybody on Twitter from, you know, CNN, MSNBC to Fox. Sure, me and, too. You know, all yeah. Those people. Yeah. yeah. Cause I love to see, you know, sort of where the bubbles sort of, uh, stop and start. And yeah. it's always like this double-sided sword of like the way that one team is interpreting something is, you know, positive, but that same exact sort of piece of information or data or whatever is being interpreted by the other team as, as harmful and scary in the end of the world. I agree with that, but the problem, the, the, the issue I have with that is that there are two, that the idea that there are two sides to everything. I think there are, there's only one truth to a lot of things. And then there are, you know, obviously if we're going to, we can, we should argue about the role of government or tax policy or, or anything. There's a lot of different interpretations, but we shouldn't argue about say how many soldiers, you know, uh, got traumatic brain injury from the, the missile attack on the American base. We shouldn't, there are certain news stories that, you know, deserve nuance and so on. And by the way, there are other situations, policies and news stories that have, you know, more than two angles, right? More than, sure. you know, uh, but I think the problem with media is, media is designed to divide us. 
So is politics. I blame media more than politics. Oh, I really do. Absolutely. Media, the way to make a lot of money in media is divide people because that's when you get a, an exciting conversation and argument. That's when you get ratings. That's when you can sell advertisements. Yeah, and, it leads, it leads, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then politicians uh, build off that. And I mean, conservatives are so much better than liberals at the media game. I mean, I have always been a very progressive guy. So when I turn on like a right-wing radio station, I'm horrified and terrified that the world is ending. All my money and my rights are being stolen from me. And then when I come back to, you know, what I believe, I'm like, that's not, not happening. I don't believe that. But if I did, I would never turn that show off because I would want to, you know, always know where, where are they going to get me? Yeah, totally. How are they going to get me? And that works for them. It, Liberals have never been able to be really successful in media that way, except for, in my mind, Patrick, the, uh, the comedians. Only the comedians have been able to get good ratings and make money when dealing with those issues. I worked at The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. I worked on John Oliver's show. I've been on Real Time with Bill Maher. Like, all those shows are pretty successful. Uh, granted, you know, two of them are one, just once a week and seasonal, the HBO shows, Oliver and, and Bill Maher. But they're successful because of the way that they, you know, frame it. They're liberal guys doing comedy about news and politics. Yeah. I mean, I, I would argue that those are the, like, like a lot of my friends that are democratic or liberal, uh, those are like their primary news sources. That's like what they love to, you know, it's like the, they, they, they prefer that over like, you know, CNN and MSNBC and that sort of media. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, uh, it's, oftentimes it's, it's in a way better journalism too. You know, yeah. I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts on, on media. If you want to talk about that, certainly on, on those types of shows as well. I mean, what is news? Where is, where is the truth? What is, what is, what should you trust? But I also have a pretty strong belief and support in, in journalism and being able to divide journalism from opinion and be able to, you know, objective journalism from opinion stuff. And then also being able to, you know, uh, understand within even, what is meant to be objective journalism, where the biases are. Yeah, totally. I mean, the outlet of the journalist. One of the crazy things that's going on right now is like there's these measurable facts and there's things that you can quantify and like come to an exact truth on. And then there's all these things that are sort of immeasurable that, you know, create this whole cloud of confusion. And then even with the facts, it seems like you can just decide to disagree with them or disagree with their source. And people don't even trust the, you know, we can't even come to the same baseline understanding of like what is truth anymore just because of all these different. Yeah. It's, it's a very bad situation that we're in what you just described and that the baseline is something that's interpreted differently by different people, much less media outlets. And I think nowhere is that more prevalent than with climate change and vaccines. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm curious your perspective on the, uh, you know, the current state of things with media and the tear down the democratic party between like sort of the Bernie side and the, yeah. you know, more center left side. I think I understand all of it pretty well. I, I think I understand the opinions of, of, of any supporter of any politician. I think, it, I think it really matters who you are and what your life's experience has been. And I think it's really hard or people of color who are paying close attention as opposed to some of the older black folks who you know, might not know Mike Bloomberg's history uh, or even Joe Biden's history. And, and as opposed to someone like Elizabeth Warren, who you know, looks at everything through a racial lens or most people of color do. So if you're someone who's you know, got to worry, be worried about the rise of white supremacy, if you go to a synagogue, if you go to a mosque, uh, that's a real concern versus somebody else who's, you know, doesn't have those concerns. And their main concern is how much, you know, you know, what's going to happen with their, their taxes, what's going to happen with their health care, or, you know, how is their industry going to be re regulated? I like to try to understand the points of view from all of these different people. But I also, I guess I just have a really, like if I were to generalize about my, my political philosophy, or maybe my political economic philosophy be, you know, you got to put people before profits, make all the money you can. But if your business or company is destroying the actual neighborhood I live in, you can't do that. If your drug is killing people, you can't do that. If your bank is creating a, a housing bubble, you know, you can't do that. 
So, so that's what I mean by putting profits before people. You can make money with your bank or with your drug, and there's miracle drugs that have saved lives and, and, and made life more comfortable. Uh, you can make money uh, with your you know, with your gas station even, but it's, you know, you have to understand the costs, the economic costs, and more importantly, the, the human costs. And, you know, the biggest probably sin of this country is, is the cost of war, Certainly. cost of war on, on the nation of Iraq. You know, I, I am very, very, uh, I'll always, I'll never, I'll never be okay with the horrible, horribleness of that war and what we did to those people. And if you don't care about the Iraqis, then you should care about the American veterans whose families we destroyed Oh on, yeah, a, the, on, a, on a lie. A, bunch yeah, of lies. a lot of mental health issues, PTSD. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, I'm totally with you there. It's yeah. Insane. I've done a lot of work with the veterans community and I, I take that so, so seriously. I've, I've, I've seen firsthand close up and personal, uh, the, the loss of limbs, the loss of their sanity. And yeah. it's, um, and for what, for what? Yeah. And the, and I think, uh, you know, sort of what you're describing there is like, we can agree that capitalism is, is good. It has, you know, benefits and that, you know, we can create miracle drugs and things like that. Uh, and you know, there's, there's, a, you know, it's like, there's a plus side to it, but like we were talking about before, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Whereas the problem is like that crony, crony capitalism where, you know, all of a sudden the politicians are with these, you know, yeah, I don't CEOs even think I'd go, like I don't even think I'd go as far as, as, as we can agree that capitalism and what everything else you said, because it's obviously it's great for a lot of people and it has been over time great for, you could argue generations, but I think, you know, you talk about miracle drugs um, as an example of capitalism and innovation and there being competition. Well, it's like cap, number one, capitalism is not patriotic. We're developing these drugs here and we have to pay more for them than other countries do. How is that fair? Number one. And the other thing with this coronavirus, and I'm no expert on economic, I'm no expert on anything, but, but I would, uh, what I read yesterday was that markets are terrible. Capitalism and markets are terrible for vaccines. They don't make a lot of money and you have to invest a ton upfront without knowing that it's going to be, you know, that's any drug, but, but you, you would do it for a drug that would cure cancer, but you don't do it for a vaccine like this because the, the profit margins not as much. So, Markets are not good to develop vaccines and vaccines obviously will save and have saved humanity from all kinds of different diseases. So, so, but, but to not argue with people about economics, I kind of just always say, forget capitalism, forget socialism, forget every ism that you know. The internet has changed everything. Our mobile phones and social media has changed everything. What is the economic model that, that, and you know, this is where I'm very vulnerable to not Andrew Yang's philosophy because he was, not the first person, just the first political leader to really, you know, popularize it. But the idea that automation is something that needs to be taken seriously into consideration. And I think that, you know, both Democrats and Republicans have got us divided over trade and what that has done to our economy, you know, outsourcing American jobs to cheaper labor that doesn't have the environmental regulations and so on. Okay, there's, there's a lot to be talked about that, but it's not nearly as sexy to talk about robots and computers and automation making, uh, taking jobs. And how do, you, how do you stop that? How do you deal with that? I think that to me, that's where the most interesting conversation lies. The conversation that Andrew Yang was trying to lead in terms of the economic and really the human experience moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think he highlighted like a, a con like I think that problem of automation and, and sort of like the advancement in technology removing like everyday people jobs. I think this is a trend that's been going on since the internet took off because we used to work in a, you know, we used to live in a world that was primarily driven by manual labor and physical work. Uh, something that basically anybody could be trained on and could do, you know, if you're able-bodied. Uh, and we've changed into this world where it's, you know, super complex. You have to, you know, wrestle with, like in my day-to-day -day life, I wrestle with at least 20 different software platforms a day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's only getting more complex as yeah. far as like how much like sort of you need to use your mind to be productive in this economy. So our economy just doesn't reward physical labor like it used to. It rewards, you know, intense, it strenuous mental labor. It doesn't need the physical labor. And to accommodate what you're saying that 20 software programs, it needs to provide affordable education so that a poor kid who could be the next Steve Jobs gets an opportunity to be that innovative person. But, you know, there, therein lies another inequity in this country. We have, you know, a, a tr horrible inequity. And I'm talking about just elementary school. Actually, forget that. The statistics on education, which I've 
uh, I've, I've worked a lot in that space and interviewed a lot of people. Universal pre-K determines more than almost any other thing. If you had access to nursery school, universal pre-K, pre-K, I should say, uh, you are going to, uh, you have far, far more likely to be successful in life. If you did not go to pre-K, then you're far, far more likely to be less successful and even end up in jail. And the statistics on that, everybody should check everything I'm saying and critically think about all this stuff, not just trust any of it. But I, I think there's a preponderance of evidence that says pre-K is a game changer. But if you don't provide that for a kid, teach him to, to read earlier, how does he end up like you, where you're at running a company and, and being able to even navigate these, the software? No, he's going to end up as a mechanic. Oh, wait, we don't need mechanics anymore. As a farmer, oh, wait, we don't need farmers anymore, like you were saying. I think that's a really good point that you're putting your finger on. So how do we, how do we solve it? I say education. Everybody should have as much education as possible. Yeah, I think the bottleneck for our entire economy is going to be education. And what's fascinating to me, though, about that issue is that, you know, first off, it's fascinating what you said about pre-K versus not going to pre-K, like how much that makes a difference. Now imagine the difference if our education system was actually like more effective and productive, you know, like these, uh, a lot of the whole system of going through grades one through 12 sitting, you know, factory style and, you know, learning in this way with all these other people about a bunch of subjects that you don't need or don't, you know, are not beneficial for, you know, the real world, you know, people get spit out at the age of 18 with barely any applicable skills to what the actual economy requires. It's like, imagine if we actually dialed it in a little bit. Yeah, but that would, I think the problem with everything that we're talking about here is, is the disconnect, especially Americans. Americans have a really difficult time, number one, trusting and having any faith in government. And I think we can talk about kind of when that started, assassinations and, uh, you know, in the sixties, the Vietnam war. And, and really since then, um, on and on with different administrations and so on. We could talk about it, but, but we could do that if we would pay for it. But to pay, how do we pay for it? Well, you have to pay taxes to, to have good schools. I am not a person who thinks there should be a, uh, uh, any kind of privatization with public schools. If you want to go to a private school and you can afford that or you know, expensive college, fine, good. But everybody should be able to get the robust education that like you just said, uh, prepares them for a life in the 21st century, not in the 20th century. And I completely agree with you. I have 12 and 15 year old girls. We have a great public school, but yeah, it's still the factory, man. It is still the factory. And while they teach Italian and they have other interesting, you know, they have a radio TV studio that another school doesn't have. It's still not what you're talking about, which is, you know, specifically tailored for the 21st century. That requires a lot of resources and other nations are able to do it I think at, at better uh, in many better ways because they, I think, understand that you got to pay for it. People have to pay high taxes if you want those good things. I, I, I'd love to be wrong if you got an I, argument. I wonder out. about that. I mean, because like it's one of these things where like we have this antiquated education system and it's like, is it, is it inefficient just the way that it is? Like, could you, could you teach someone to be more effective? Like you literally take a kid from sixth grade to 12th grade, could you teach them everything you need in half the time uh, or give them even more powerful information in half the time? Like, could we sort of restructure it in a way that, uh, you know, with the same resources that are going there today, just make it better, you know, sort of evolve it in a way that's more efficient, more effective. Well, the, que- the, the question is, if that can be done, why hasn't it been done? And I think that Obviously, it's really, really hard to change curriculum. And why is that? Why is it hard to change curriculum? Who are the who are the different interests that are arguing for or against something? I mean, you know, one simple education thing to to talk about is why do our uh, why do our kids go to school so early? Yeah, in the morning. Oh, yeah, yeah it just doesn't make sense. We have the science. We know, yeah. we know better. Yeah. Can't we move that? It's like, well, the the athlete lobby. It that's I, my understanding is it's the the, the high school, you know, sports families, they, you know, they dominate, they have all the influence and after school sports have to start at whatever it is, yeah. especially when it gets dark earlier. Like that's one argument I've heard for why. Otherwise, I don't know what the arguments are for why kids have to get, you know, on a bus by 630 in the morning, and spend eight hours there. Yeah, I, I have no idea where that comes from. But what's, I mean, there's that, uh, you know, like Bush's policy of no child left behind, which basically implemented a standard uh, you know, standardized tests across the nation, right? Horrible. Which, 
Well, yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's one of those things that like on one side, it sounds great. Like, oh, we're going to get everyone up to this bar at least. But then what turns out is that that bar becomes all they're shooting for. They're, they're like the incentive moved from like train, you know, kids as much as possible and they should all clear this bar to just make sure they just get over this bar. Well, uh, there's that. And there's also what are tests measuring? They're measuring my memory, my anxiety uh, levels. <laughs> um, and I don't have a great memory. I don't memorize things and then remember them for the test. And that matters. Sure, it matters for life. Memory matters. But you know what matters a lot more? Grit. Yeah. Grit matters. Hustle. Networking. Personality. Curiosity. Character. Resilience. Pers- perseverance. You don't measure that on a standardized test. Yeah. Curiosity, most importantly. Glad you mentioned that. Yeah. You don't measure those things. I got terrible grades in high school and I went to a junior college and I got excellent grades. But the difference was I picked the courses. I had more of an investment in it. Uh, It was, you know, I was living away from home. I was more mature and so on. But the bottom line is it rewarded my hard work. It rewarded my aptitudes, my curiosity. Uh, And that's how we should be measuring intelligence. And that's how we should be measuring success. But that's, it's harder to do when you have thousands of, of kids. You just want to put them through a Scantron test, which, yeah. by the way, my SATs were reflective upon the fact that I had to take a shit the entire time. And it's like that determined, really? That determined what college I was going to do because I had a bean burrito the night before? <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, but anybody listening, don't eat a bean burrito before a test that matters. It's hilarious. I had a friend that had that same exact problem. Uh, uh, it must be a common occurrence then. You know what I mean? How many, how many kids are losing the SATs because well, of Mexican food? I don't know what the, uh, I think there, I'm going to say, I think there must be something that ties your anxiety levels to your digestive system. Cause oh, sure. I think it's pretty normal to want to throw up or take a shit when you're nervous. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, let me ask you this. Cause you mentioned you'd be opposed to any sort of privatization of education. Would you be opposed to, you know, privatized education to test some of these models or systems like having kids go in later and maybe shorten the school day and well, give them- we have that. I mean, that's academic yeah. research. That's scholarly research. Yeah. And they, yeah. and there, there are tests being piloted even in public schools to try those things. My wife uh, was part of a pilot of teaching mindfulness. So yeah, nice. I'm for elements of it. When I say I'm not for privatization, what I, what I mean specific, more specifically is I'm not for schools competing for funding because what that does is leave children in this community behind because we tie funding for schools to property taxes. That means if you're in a poor community, you're not getting that funding. Uh, and I mean, you can water all down to whether or not a student, a, a kid is eating. If you're not eating, you're not going to get good grades. If you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from, if you're living with PTSD the, that measures the same as combat veterans, like a lot of students in, in, in very violent neighborhoods in America are living, you're not going to do well. So my issue is, is having the, the schools compete for resources and for money based on test scores. There, in my mind, should be no place for that. But having elements that are privately funded. And I, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in all of academic research and there's government grants and funding. So I think that takes place and I think that's good. I just don't think it, you know, you don't implement it unless it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a testing ground. But what are your thoughts on, uh, have you heard of like that voucher system based basically like instead of, you know, your property taxes and everything going to your most local school, getting a voucher and you get to choose what school you send your kid to. I think the research on that, that was, I think that was an interesting test. I mean, there are a lot of people, uh, education experts that were against that from the start, uh, but they tested it. They did the voucher thing. I think it's been proven a miserable failure. Although when you have the argument about that, it's really interesting because the people, there are some good outcomes. Like any other policy, there are winners. And if you argue about the winners and the people who are successful, it's like saying racism's over because you know we had a black family in the White House. It's like, no, there's one black can't like, No, just because this person won because they got a voucher or because they went to a charter school doesn't mean that others will. And I think you always, to talk about policy, what works, at least the way I argue and think about things, is you look at the aggregate. How many people did this drug therapy help? How many people did this uh, charter school help? How many did it not help? How many got left behind? And I think the voucher system is like a lottery and it rewards some people in the community, but it leaves so many others behind. When it comes to education and healthcare, I don't think you can, you know, you can't have a perfectly equitable system 
There never has been. I don't think there ever will be, but we could do way, way better if you took the profit motive out of it. Because once you put the profit motive into it, uh, you forget about the kids. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I would argue that's the situation with universities today as well. It's like the universities are, in, are not really incentivized to be competitive uh, because they know that basically every kid is going to get approved for, uh, you know, lending that is, you know, completely outrageous for their age. You know, like you could apply for a credit card at the age of 18, maybe get approved for a thousand bucks. But you apply for a student loan, you get approved for like 50K on the spot, which is like, you know, sort of aggressive lending practices. And then, yeah, I don't know that much about that to speak on. And I do have, I am, I am um, partial to, I think it's a more conservative argument that as long as government is giving money away, college is going to take it and the cost of college is going to go up. I've heard that argument and I'm, I'm vulnerable to it, but, um, but I, I I don't know enough to, uh, I will soon because my daughters are, uh, you're almost there. Yeah. You're going to see the, the whole, uh, you know, you go through the ACTs, SATs, the college board. You pay. Oh, no, my daughters, I should say, they're both going to be Marines. Beautiful. Excellent. <laughs> Semper uh, Fi girls, get out there. <laughs> Can't afford college. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's like, again, it's like, it sounds great. Like education for everyone. Let's make sure that everyone gets approved for education. But then on the back end, when you see the results downstream, it's like, oh, the universities just raised the cost of tuition because they know everyone's going to get approved for these loans and they hired all these administrators, which, you know, basically doesn't improve the education, but makes it 10 times more. Expensive. Yeah. I mean, when I, but I look at America and know that we had much more affordable, our parents' generation, much more affordable uh, secondary education. And I look at, you know, Scandinavia or Europe and say in Canada and say, well, they're, the arguments against living in those nations. And by the way, if someone, you know, writes and says you should move, I'd love to. I'd love to. If someone gave me a job in New Zealand, I'd fucking no way. Like, I think the system that we're in is so in, so inequitable. I mean, like, I, I feel like if you want to talk about something that most of us can agree on, hard work should be rewarded, period. How do you measure that? Well, you, it's a tough thing to measure. But I didn't lose my job at SiriusXM because I wasn't working hard or because I wasn't talented. And I'm still working hard and I'm still talented and I hope everybody will listen to my podcast and pay for it and, and, and so on. But I now have to get healthcare on the, on the exchanges. It's not affordable. And guess what? My daughter's just been diagnosed with severe stress and needs a brace and needs therapy and all that's really expensive. So now we have a chronic issue in our family, which we never had before. And we don't have healthcare. That ain't right. Yeah, it's not 100%. right that you lose your job and you don't have health insurance and why that's in any way controversial or why conservatives believe that you should only be given health care if you are, quote, working hard is stupid because, sorry, there's no way to measure that. Yeah. We're all working hard. You're going to a job, you should get health care. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of those things that I, I firmly disagree with, like, you know, conservative ink on, which is just like, oh, Health problems. Oh yeah, you should go bankrupt if you didn't save money. It's like that's just crazy. You know, we, what we don't, society was ever was yeah. ever okay with that. Only you know, in 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 industrial civilized rich countries, only ours. You travel anywhere in the world, talk to anybody else in the, in, in any country from Israel to Australia to you know even South America and obviously Canada. Just talk to Canadians. Now, SiriusXM, my show is on for fourteen years. I was talking to Canadian audiences and a lot about healthcare and overwhelming the most famous respected person in Canada is a guy named Tommy Douglas, who was the prime minister of Saskatchewan, who brought them their universal health care. He's the most probably well-loved, respected. It's not perfect. No healthcare system is. But oh my gosh, when they look at what we have, it's, it's you know, by every metric, it's, it's way better. We have a couple of therapies or something that you can do better on, but that's not the way you measure it. Yeah, it's, it's, one of these things that's like in America, it seems like there's all sorts of problems, you know, between healthcare and, and education. It's a lot of people argue about whose fault it is or, or what, where is the system breaking or whatever. Uh, but at least, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, we can change it. You know, people can actually change it. If anything has provided optimism for the fact that anything is possible in government well, and politics, it's the fact that someone like Trump can become president. It's like, okay, uh, yeah, all of a sudden well, anything is possible. I don't yeah, know. I hope you're right about that. But the, <laughs> I would submit to the argument for anybody that, if you, I think the, one of the most fascinating, and I think this is always a really healthy thing. I wish people wouldn't get so, you know, have their feelings hurt about it, that they get upset and take it personally. But let's argue about the budget. Let's argue about, we all pay money in taxes. Let's argue about how that money should be spent. And the classic liberal argument is on healthcare and education and the more classic uh, uh, conservative argument, you know, they'll cite the constitution is, uh, is defense. And so putting aside your preconceived notions on that, 
our defense budget, even a lot of conservatives will agree, um, is preposterous. And, and, and I would just argue evolve, ladies and gentlemen, evolve. We do not need battleships, submarines, nuclear weapons, and all of what we have. We don't need it. That war is not going to be fought again. The war that is going to be fought is all going to be online, and that's way cheaper to fight. It's expensive as hell, cyber warfare. But that's where the future of warfare is. And the idea that we're spending billions and that's all lobbying and special interest money, like let's spend that money on, I, I just always say, if you're more worried about a terrorist attack than a heart attack, you've been duped. The yeah. thing that's going to kill you or your family or bankrupt you or your family is healthcare. Every single one of us is going to have health issues or someone in our family is going to, your parents, your kids, you. And so let's spend the money there wisely and not waste it on weapon systems that we don't need in, in bases in countries that nobody wants. Yeah, and I mean, I'm totally with you on that. I think there's one thing that we could do, and, and I, I really actually think it's probably the, uh, the mission of like my generation is to implement the technology that we have today with blockchains and sort of this like extreme transparency into government, you know, and to introduce those things because the problem with the, you know, the defense spending is like, I think everyone, agree, I don't know, I, I could say this and might be wrong, but I think people agree you need some defense. You need to have like, you know, the nation state is a good structure and all that stuff. Not everyone agrees with that, I guess. Some people don't want borders and everything, but uh, having a defense to protect the people is great. But when you see like, billions of dollars, I think it might've even been like a trillion dollars or something went missing on the books of the Pentagon and there's just no accountability for it. That's where I think the, the big disaster is, is when you can't see where the money is going, we pay the taxes, but we don't have insight on where it goes. And if we use some sort of decentralized technology that, you know, we have now, but is not implemented in our government, if we use something like that, uh, for accountability for the elected officials, I think we could have a, a much more effective democracy. Uh, yeah, but even if we did that, I think you're, I think you make a lot of really good points. I don't really understand how all of that, that stuff works, but I, I, I need to, we all need to, but as long as you have the kind of money, special interest money flowing into, into campaigns, you know, that's the, always the biggest and least interesting thing to talk about is the money that you need. I was thinking about running for Congress after I lost my job at Sirius. And once I realized how much money I had to raise. I was like, I don't, who wants to do that? By the way, every Republican, I've interviewed congressmen from both parties, lots of them. Nobody wants to raise money. Nobody wants to go out and ask somebody for money and, and, and glad hand and go to these events. Nobody. Republicans don't like it. Democrats don't like it. Uh, but that's the system that we're in because that's, uh, I mean, I can, you know, there's a lot of really good literature on this. David K. Johnston has written books about it. Lawrence Lessig has written books about it. And, and you know, Again, this is a pretty easy one to me, but it's divisive. You know, corpor corporations aren't people and money isn't speech. But the Supreme Court, the conservatives on the Supreme Court interpreted otherwise. And I don't know why. I don't know why conservative Americans agree with that. We'd all be better off if whatever special interest you don't like, money wasn't flowing in his campaigns. If you're conservative, then maybe you don't want the, the union money. And obviously, if you're liberal, you don't want the oil money. You know, I mean, we should all know. I don't know why that's so controversial. Fossil fuels and climate change shouldn't be. But nonetheless, uh, that to me is the biggest problem. So even if you had more accountability, if you still have the broken campaign finance system, then the blockchain tracking every dollar, maybe that wouldn't matter as much. Yeah. Yeah, it's the campaign finance thing is fascinating. I think we're going to learn a lesson or, uh, in this new election here coming up. Uh, see just how powerful money is compared to persuasion well, and the power of persuasion. Yeah, well, the power of persuasion, where is that coming in? I mean, the most interesting and, and, and uh, transparently corrupt outcome of, of Trump recently is like when you talk about campaign finance, people, a lot of people gave him money for his campaign or other Republicans and he pardoned them. He pardoned them. Like the, if any other politician, Republican or Democrat did that, that would be it. He pardoned people who gave him or others campaign donations and money to their causes. It's wild. And yeah. I don't know, again, I, that's where I don't understand why myself and a Trump supporter would disagree. Like, where is the baseline on what is a good, what is corrupt? And I think, unfortunately, I think that the Trump supporter doesn't mind, I mean, I'm generalizing here, winning by cheating. And I thought everybody did. I thought we all were like, no, you can't cheat. I don't care I, what your political ideology is. If you if you're playing Candyland and you cheat, 
I don't reward that. I don't have respect for that. If you, if I hire you to do a job and, and I don't pay you, that's not cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought the same, but I was looking at the, you know, the democratic side, which, you know, with the super delegates and the way that they rigged it against Bernie last time around, I was like, when, like, I thought we were, you know, a democracy. I thought we cared about, you know, people's votes and, uh, you know, and, and not, you know, like, like the people choosing the candidates. And so I think on both sides, you see the, you know, the cognitive dissonance looking at the other team. But there's no, I mean, come on, there's no comparison between what you just said, which I don't even agree happened. I think you can look up uh, um, the, the whole rigged super delicates thing and we can, I don't want to go down that road, with you, but, but I mean, if you want to, we can, but people should look that up. But more importantly, like the corruption, what is corruption? Like do conservatives more likely to be upset with government, you know, uh, think that government is corrupt, but who corrupts the government? Who corrupts it? Private sector, private interests. And that's why people love Bernie. That's why a lot of conservative people love Bernie. That's why I respected Ron Paul, even though I didn't respect his ideology or his policies. You couldn't pay him, yeah. Ron Paul, and you can't pay Bernie Sanders to change their mind on an issue. If, but, but, and yeah, there are plenty of Democrats who are very corrupt. Rod Blagojevich, you know, sold a Senate seat and Trump pardoned him. Uh, so the corruption that you're seeing from Trump and Republicans today, I think is, you know, you can't cite anything even remotely close with even like past Republicans, much less today's Democrats. So I wouldn't, uh, I'm not falling for your false equivalency on that, but you can try again. Give me another one. I just, you know, you do look at the Hillary thing, you know, it's, What's the Hillary thing? What are we talking about? There's all sorts of Hillary things. You know, you see like her position in the State Department and the Clinton Foundation donations. And like, you know, you see, uh, you know, for me, the superdelegates thing, I like, I followed the election. But what did she do with the state? What was that? Yeah. What did you, I mean, Hillary Clinton was one of the greatest secretary of states that we ever had and nobody even knows it. I've, like, if I've you care about women and girls, if you care about women and girls and the rest of the world, every nation that she worked in, empowered and raised up women and girls because she cared about that and she put people in positions to do that. Like, I work a lot in that space. And not to mention, she, she did, I think they did terrible on Libya. I think they made mistakes uh, in, in other places. But I mean, and I think, you know, I, I don't like Hillary because she voted for the Iraq war. Uh, but, but the idea that, you know, she did do, and that's why we have a, I think I have to have a nuanced look at, at everybody Although, to be fair, I don't have one with, with Trump. Um, she was really good as a secretary of state in terms of empowering women and girls, providing education and healthcare opportunities for women and girls in, in underdeveloped countries. And, you know, we, I, I could go on and on about Hillary Clinton. I certainly wasn't behind her for the nomination. Uh, but, you know, the, the way that she was demonized, I mean, I can demonize her pretty easily too. But, you yeah. know, the, the type of corruption that we've seen from this president... Uh, and the t I mean, who do you want running the EPA? Who do you want? What kind of person on paper do you want running the EPA? Someone who cares about the environment and can balance the regulations with business interests? Yeah. Okay. But not a coal industry lobbyist, right? Like, don't we agree that coal industry lobbyists should not be running the EPA? Like, yeah, that's certainly a and that's what he, that. But that's what he's done with every agency. Yeah. He's put an industry captain in, star, in charge. And that's what Republicans generally do. And again, I don't understand that. If you're a conservative, or I understand that you won't want too many regulations on your business, but in the long term, you want there to be an equitable playing field for your industry so that you can compete within the industry. So you don't want them doing favors for the actual industry they're supposed to be regulating. I mean, the financial industry, how are conservatives and liberals disagreeing on the on the banks being better regulated so they don't blow up the economy. Yeah, if there's one thing we should all be able to agree on, it's that. I wish. Yeah. Well, hey, Pete, I, this has been fascinating. I could talk to you for another uh, sure, two man. hours, I think. But, uh, Me too. You know, uh, I get, I, it's a crazy day ahead of us both. So, uh, you know, we're coming to the end here. But do you want to tell the audience where they can find you, your podcast, everything? Yeah, my podcast is Stand Up with Pete Dominic. And uh, I started it in in November and uh, after I left SiriusXM. And basically it's conversations with the smartest people I can find. I, I, I have a great network of people that I've uh, met over the years that come on and talk to me. And, you know, for example, my last podcast episode had four different experts on four different issues, national security. We had one on 
uh, coronavirus. A coronavirus. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, you know, there's different, uh, sometimes there are shorter conversations with a number of guests, sometimes there are a longer conversation, but I think hopefully people will listen to the podcast because of my network of people that I'm able to get on are pretty high caliber thinkers. And uh, that seems to be the, the kind of bread and butter and sauce of a successful podcast. And I'm supporting it on Patreon, which is really an exciting way to, to support yourself. I used to look down on people that were doing on that. And now I'm like, wow, what's more equitable than people subscribing and paying for the content that they want. So patreon.com slash Pete Dominic, please. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And I, I listened to a few of your uh, most recent podcasts in preparation for this. And I, I thought it was great. The diversity Thanks, of opinions on there. And I love bringing in different experts like that. It's very, very enlightening. I love to share that, see the different perspectives. So definitely go check it out for everyone listening. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you having me on your show and uh, continued success to you, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.